Mike Malloy needs to die. 7 p.m., early January. It's a cold night when Tony Marino looks out the door of his storefront. It's finally dark enough. Time to open for business. He slides boxes away from the storefront windows, faded from the sun on one side. During the day, they provide camouflage for the emptiness inside the store. At night, they form a well-worn path to the back of the room. It's 1933, and the country is in the middle of what will be known as the Great Depression. Empty storefronts aren't the exception. They're the rule. Marino runs an illegal speakeasy out of the back of the store. Has been ever since the start of Prohibition back in 1920. But he's seen the writing on the wall and knows he needs a plan B. An exit strategy. He needs Mike. Marino walks to the front and unlocks the door. Right on schedule, Michael Malloy waltzes inside. He's beyond first name basis. He's a regular. And so he sits down and orders his usual. Only it doesn't go on his tab because the guy doesn't have one. Somewhere along the line, Malloy signed a paper in exchange for never going thirsty again. Free booze. It was a deal Malloy couldn't ignore. And Tony Marino knew it. Marino leans on the counter and says something to Red Murphy, the bartender. If he and his buddies have their way, Michael Malloy's unlimited whiskey ends tonight. They said free drinks for the rest of his life. They never said how long that would be. Marino and his crew patiently wait for Malloy to drink himself to death. They're depending on it. Except it isn't happening and their patience is running out. Mike Malloy needs to die, now. Marino nods to Red. Give it to him. The bartender switches out a bottle. It's still rot gut whiskey, that's a given. But this other one has a little something extra. Michael Malloy downs it in one gulp, then another, then one twice as potent, and still more. It seems no amount of poison is enough to take this guy down. Marino and Red look at one another as Malloy leans drowsily on the bar. They would find over the course of the next month that Michael Malloy or Iron Mike, the Rasputin of the Bronx as he would become known, would be surprisingly hard to kill. This may have been a mistake. How are they going to kill Mike Malloy? History consists of heroes and villains, and I suppose everything in between. But it's usually the villains who are the most interesting. Their flaws, their quirks, the voids in their hearts that force them to do the unthinkable. These are the characters that fascinate us. That pull us in. That compel us to watch and don't let us look away. These are the characters that we're all about. You've heard of Al Capone, but what about George Remus, whose bootlegging empire made Capone's operation look like a lemonade stand? Sure, you know Billy the Kid. But while he was robbing cattle with a pistol, James McClintock was blowing up men by the dozen with his newfangled war machines. Never heard of them? Just wait, you'll see. And it's all true. Each episode, we want you to join them on their treacherous journeys to not only learn about what makes them tick, but more importantly, feel the times that created them. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel. History's Forgotten Villains. 
We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join with us every episode as we explore dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Tony Marino, 27, gaunt with a hungry look in his eye, is desperate. The Great Depression is ravaging the country. New York City is destitute. People are sleeping in shanty towns in Central Park. Marino feels the flames licking at his feet. He's managed to stay off the streets thanks to the principle of supply and demand. The Alcohol Prohibition Act put into effect on January 17, 1920, created a major demand for hooch among the economically hobbled New Yorkers, looking to drown their sorrows at the bottom of a bottle. And Marino supplies them with, well, whatever toilet swill booze he can scrounge up to sell in the back of his Bronx storefront. But there's a problem, and Marino knows it. His customer base is thinning out. And of the remaining barflies racking up tabs at his speakeasy, few of them are any good for it. He's constantly losing money when customers refuse to pay. The entirety of New York City is a wallet opening up and a little moth flying out. You could only make money from peddling moonshine to the huddled masses if they can pay for it. What's worse, prohibition, a failed experiment with a whole truckload of baggage that doomed it from the start, is ending. Everyone's happy about it, except for the impoverished speakeasy owners like Marino who built their entire livelihood on a supply and demand model built and maintained by the continued governmental control of alcohol. He knows that once alcohol is legal again, nobody is gonna come to his hole-in-the-wall gin joint anymore. He needs to come up with a plan, or start scouting out a prime location at his nearest shantytown. And then in walks Marino's most loyal customer, Michael Malloy, a sporadically employed alcoholic living on the streets. That is, if you can call someone a customer if they won't pay you. The guy has been nothing but a thorn in Marino's side for the last several years. Of all the speakeasy's regulars, he is the most regular, but also the least likely to pay for his drinks. Marino has an idea. His ticket out of poverty would be life insurance fraud. Nobody fully knows who Mike Malloy is. His paper trail only goes back as far as the early 20s. He's an Irish immigrant, worked as a firefighter before losing his job to the Depression, and eventually took to living on the streets and working any odd job he could find in exchange for alcohol. His records are so sparse that Mike Malloy might not even be his real name. Some accounts from this time say he's about 40 years old. Some claim he's in his 60s. And the fuzziness of all these details paved the way for what's about to go down. By the time he wanders into Marino's speakeasy, he's a full-blown alcoholic who hasn't worked in months. Marino takes pity on Malloy at first, tossing him a few free drinks here and there, and eventually gives him a part-time job sweeping up the shop in exchange for whiskey. But as the depression worsens, that all goes away. Every night, Malloy shows up begging for another drink. And depending on Marino's mood, he either tosses him to the curb or relents and has the bartender slide him a few shots. He becomes a nuisance to the already stressed Marino. And so he becomes the perfect target for the scheme because unbeknownst to even Mike Malloy, the group had taken out multiple life insurance policies against his well-being. This all starts in July of 1932. 
Marino, Kreisberg, and Pasqua sit around a table in the back of the bar playing cards. The thick blanket of smoke above their heads provides cloud cover as they throw out ideas for potential get-rich-quick schemes. Selling magazines door-to-door? No. Too much work. Gambling? Nah. None of them are very good at cards. Maybe one of them could become one of those organ grinder guys with the little dancing monkey on a leash. No, I, I think that's just a thing from the cartoons. Is that real? Either way, where would they get a monkey? Then Pasqua looks at Marino and gives him a knowing smirk. There's always life insurance. Marino knows what he's getting at. They've had some history there, but we'll get to that later. If one of them has a sick relative, they can take out a policy on them and just wait for the cash to roll in. This isn't even a particularly novel idea. Committing some form of life insurance fraud is actually a fairly common crime during the Great Depression. However, try as they might, none of them can think of any ailing Aunt Ednas or grim-fated Grandpa Joes tucked away anywhere. Oh well, maybe there's something to that monkey thing. But wait, somebody has an idea. What if they made a family member? Marino looks to Pasqua, who looks to Michael Malloy sleeping at the bar. He's a street vagrant, an Irish immigrant with no family, no friends to speak of, and a hopeless alcoholic. Every night he stumbles into the bar and guzzles as much booze as he can get down his throat, passes out, stumbles back onto the street, wash, rinse, and repeat. What if one of them poses as his brother and takes out a life insurance policy on him? Who would it hurt? His alcohol-fueled death is all but inevitable, and very soon by the looks of him. If anything, he's living on borrowed time. It's a victimless crime. The three men shake on it. Pasqua will make the calls and set up the meetings with the insurance companies. They'll get the bartender, Red Murphy, to pose as Malloy's next of kin and sign the papers and Malloy will ply him with as much free alcohol as he can handle. To accelerate the process. This will be easy. 10 p.m., mid-January. Mike Malloy is back with his elbows resting on the bar again, enjoying his bottomless glass of whiskey. Marino's even letting him sleep upstairs at night. Malloy has become something of a common fixture, like a barn cat, one who drinks up all the merchandise. But this isn't that classic tale of a rough-and-tumble speakeasy owner with a heart of gold. No. Marino just doesn't want to have to go searching for the Irishman in the streets once he finally keels over from the endless amounts of poisonous wood alcohol he's been pouring down his throat. Across the bar, a group of men stare at Malloy expectantly. There's Anthony Tough Tony Bastoni, a mob-connected street goon. His lackey, Joseph Maglioni. Daniel Kreisberg, a local grocer. Frank Pasqua, the director of a nearby funeral home, and Joseph Red Murphy, the bartender of the speakeasy, and of course, Marino. For the last several weeks, they've stood like this every night, waiting for Malloy to succumb to the gallons of poison he's guzzling. But night after night, he stumbles out of the bar and returns the next day no worse for wear and asking for more. He even says he likes the smooth taste of the special drinks they've been giving him lately. These are the greatest days of his life, and he is having a blast. The plan seemed perfect. Wood alcohol, 
a main ingredient in antifreeze and formaldehyde, is highly toxic to people. As a matter of fact, it has become a popular alternative to the real thing ever since prohibition went into effect. And as many as 11 people are dying from drinking it every day throughout the 1920s and 30s. And yet, Malloy is downing two gallons of it per night. How is this guy still alive? They think they're staring at some kind of immortal. Or maybe he's something more unholy. They don't know. But they do know they need to up the ante if they're going to get him to kick the bucket. They want his death to appear alcohol-related, like he drank himself to death. But as the days are stacking up, there's no more time for subtlety. If poisoning his drink isn't doing the trick, maybe putting something in his food will. Murphy had opened up a can of sardines and left it sitting out to rot several days ago. Surely by now the rancid fish will cause a case of food poisoning powerful enough to put Malloy out of commission. At the last minute, fearful that it won't be enough, Marino takes the tin lid of the sardine can, chops it up into tiny sharp metal pieces, and then mixes it into the tainted sardines along with a sprinkling of rat poison. They spread the murderous marmalade onto a sandwich and hand it over to Malloy, whose eyes light up as he happily takes it. One bite. Two bites. He finishes the entire thing in minutes and washes it down with the poisonous chemicals in the glass in front of him. Then, he asks for another. The men can't believe what they're seeing. Seriously, Mike Malloy needs to die. So, remember the smoke-filled room from earlier where the murder trust initially hatched the life insurance scheme? A few nights after that, Before they started feeding Mike Malloy poison every night, they sit Malloy down at the same table and slide some papers over to him. Sign these and you'll get free whiskey for life. What's he signing? A document that says that Joseph Red Murphy, the bartender, is his brother. And that in the event of Malloy's death, the life insurance policy money will go directly to him. Does Malloy have any idea what he's actually signing? Highly unlikely. The next day, Pasqua takes Malloy to an insurance office, fills out a policy application, and the agent files it. It immediately gets rejected for exactly the same reason they are trying to open it. Malloy is high risk. He's homeless. He's an alcoholic. He's unemployed. The insurance agency knows what Pasqua knows. Malloy will probably be dead soon. Pasqua attempts to open up a policy at several other agencies, all with the same result. Rejection on the grounds that Malloy is a liability. Finally, Pasqua changes up the plan. He meets with an insurance agent for the Metropolitan Insurance Company alone, no Malloy. He tells the agent that the subject of the policy works long hours and won't be able to meet. He then fills out an application with a fake name, Nicholas Mellory, and a fake beneficiary, Joseph Mellory. The agent doesn't even know who the policy is for, but trusts Pasqua enough to submit the application. This time, it's approved for $800, or roughly $16,000 in today's money. But the rest of the guys don't think that's enough. At this point, tough Tony Bastoni, Joseph Maglioni, Daniel Kreisberg, and Red Murphy have been roped in on the scheme. And the larger number of conspirators means there's a demand for larger cuts of the profits. Pasqua meets with Prudential, 
and opens up two additional $495 policies for Nicholas Mellory, and both are approved. And because the policies all have double indemnity clauses, which double the policy amounts in the event that the person's death is ruled an accident, if they can successfully make Malloy's death look like it happened as a result of his own alcoholic foolishness, they stand to make $3,580, or $75,000 in today's money altogether if Malloy dies. 2 a.m., late January, Tony Marino stands by the bar rubbing his temples. He's stressed, at his wit's end. He can't believe Malloy isn't dead yet. They've been at this for weeks, and what was supposed to be a simple job with a big cash prize is turning into an expensive liability. They've sunk so much money into buying wood alcohol and giving Malloy free whiskey that they basically need his insurance payout just to break even at this point. After giving him the sandwich filled with rotten sardines and metal shavings, which Malloy found incredibly appetizing and not at all throat and stomach slicing, Red Murphy suggested they soak day-old oysters in wood alcohol and feed him that. Tainted oysters can make you very sick, and eating them with alcohol is known to cause severe indigestion. But Iron Mike Malloy just slurped him down and asked for seconds. At this point... Every one of their attempts to poison him has failed miserably. They need to get more creative, which will include more risks. Marino and the gang wait until all the customers are gone and watch as Malloy pounds shot after shot of his favorite poisonous brew. Finally, he passes out. But they aren't hoping that he'll succumb to alcohol poisoning and pass away in his sleep anymore. They are way past that. It's time to initiate phase two of this comedy of errors. I mean, this murder plot. The men grab Malloy by the arms and hoist him out into the street. The New York City winter bites at their cheeks, numbs at their fingers as they remove Malloy's coat and kick him into the gutter. He won't need that anymore. They drag Malloy to a nearby park, prop him on a bench, and douse him with ice water. He doesn't wake up for any of this. It's absolutely freezing. He'll be dead from pneumonia by morning, and everyone will chalk it up to exactly what it looks like. A drunk, passing out in a park and freezing to death. There's no way this can fail. Marino and his crew check to make sure that they haven't been spotted by anybody and rush back to the bar. The next morning, they look in the paper, expecting to see a report about Malloy's body being found in the park, but... All they find is whatever the 1930s equivalent of Dilbert is. The next night, Iron Mike walks into the bar wearing a new coat and asks for more whiskey and sandwiches. He was found by the police shortly after Marino and crew tossed him on the bench, and they took him to a homeless shelter, warmed him up, and gave him new clothes. Marino and crew stare at him in disbelief. This can't be happening. Okay, so crunched by the Great Depression and panicked about the end of Prohibition, speakeasy owner Tony Marino and friends decide on a life insurance scam. The mark? Mike Malloy, a sporadically employed man with a drinking problem. They think it should go pretty smoothly. They try giving him free liquor so that he drinks himself to death. No dice. They poison the liquor. He asks for more. 
They give him rotten food, they grind up metal and put it in his sandwiches. He's thankful for the free meals. They get him blackout drunk, strip him down to his pants, and cover him in cold water in New York in the winter, and he comes back the next night. Iron Mike is giving them more than they bargained for, but the murder trust, as they'll come to be known, isn't finished yet. Back to present day, 1933, 4 a.m. Marino ushers Malloy out of the speakeasy and he and Murphy drag him into the street. Down the road, a taxi cab idles, its headlights off. Inside the car is Hershey Green, a petty crook. He's been hired to run down Malloy and make it look like an accident. Marino first tried to hire Eddie Tin Ear Smith, another petty thief, for the hit and run, when he offered the criminal $200 for the job, $4,300 in today's money. Smith told him he was absolutely disgusted by how low the offer was. He wanted $500. John Maglioni then brought in Hershey Green, a cab driver friend of his. Green was in a bad way and agreed to do the job for $150. Hershey sees Marino and Murphy carry Malloy's unconscious body into the street. The taxi roars to life and speeds toward the three men. At the last minute, another car turns onto the street. Marino and Murphy panic and pull Malloy out of the way of the oncoming taxi. They don't want anybody to see the accident happen. The car turns around and the two men carry Malloy back into the street. The taxi once again speeds toward them. This time, Marino and Murphy leave Malloy lying in harm's way and jump out of the path of the speeding car. But so does Malloy. He hops to his feet and dodges the car just as it almost hits him. The two men drag Malloy back into the street and lay him down again. Hershey turns around and speeds towards Malloy. This time, he doesn't move, and Hershey runs straight over him. For posterity, he backs the car over Malloy's unconscious body, runs it over again, and then speeds off. Poison oysters may have been ineffective, but there's no way this is. Marino and Murphy once again run into the speakeasy to hide out. They once again check the papers the next morning to see if Malloy's death made the pages, and once again, find nothing. After a few days, completely confused, Marino calls the local hospital, looking for Malloy. And he's there. He suffered a broken collarbone and a concussion from the car incident, but is mostly fine. Worst of all, he's worked up a major thirst for some of Marino's special booze in the hospital, where they're only serving him milk and cocoa. Marino is beside himself. This is insanity. They ran him over with a car three times. How is this possible? And more importantly, what are they going to do now that Malloy is stuck in the hospital? They can't wait weeks or months to finish the job. This needs to end. Now. Pasqua points out that they're using a fake name on the policy. And no one at the insurance company has actually seen Malloy's face. Technically, as long as they produce a corpse and say it's Nicholas Mellory, they can collect the payout. Of course. Marino is so close to the situation, he can't see the obvious. All they have to do is murder a different guy. Pasqua identifies another homeless drunk. A fresh start. There's no way that there are two superhuman vagrants wandering the streets of New York. They lure him into the bar. 
get him blackout drunk, and carry him out into the street. Hershey is there with his taxi and runs the new victim over. He can't say these guys aren't consistent, but he survives. He's also taken to the hospital, makes a full recovery, and is back on the streets in a few weeks. His doctors and nurses never figure out why he has a card in his pocket that has the name Nicholas Mellory written on it. So that's it, right? It's all over. After several weeks, multiple murder attempts, and two hospitalized vagrants, Marino and his team have come up empty-handed. Worse, they're in the hole by about $1,500, about 32 grand in today's money. This whole affair has been an expensive waste of time. And then, in walks Mike Malloy, fresh out of the hospital and looking for a drink. He still has no idea that these men have been trying to murder him for weeks. How does someone like Mike Malloy get to this point? Consuming gallons of poison every night and returning the next day for more to the place where men he trusts are locked in a wily Coyote-esque quest to end his life? The answer is tragically simple. During the Great Depression, alcoholism is at an all-time high. People are retreating into the haze of inebriation to escape the crushing bleakness of daily American life. What's worse, alcohol is illegal and people resort to drinking low-quality moonshine and dangerous chemicals just to keep themselves drunk. This is all highly dangerous, and it's estimated that nearly 800 people a year are dying from alcoholism just in New York City alone. Malloy is one of these people. Born in 1873 and migrating to the United States sometime in the 1920s, he tries to have a go at the American dream, working as a firefighter for several years. However, as the Great Depression kicks into full gear in the 1930s, Malloy is laid off. The economic stress overwhelms him, and he takes to drinking large amounts of alcohol as a coping mechanism. Eventually, the addiction completely overtakes his life. He gets a few jobs here and there, but his alcohol consumption gets in the way of being able to work. He ends up in the streets, sleeping in alleyways, begging at the bar for any drop of alcohol they'll spare. A man like this, clouded by economic desperation and addiction, is incredibly vulnerable. When he falls into the crosshairs of Marino and his gang, he doesn't stand a chance. He throws all of his trust into the men. He genuinely believes that they want to help him out. He considers Tony Marino his only true friend in the world. This, however, will end up being Malloy's final tragic mistake. Midnight, late February. Marino isn't going to give Malloy any more free whiskey after tonight. It's over. Even if he has to shoot the drunk himself, something he's considered doing multiple times before, each time being talked down by the rest of the men. But nothing can stop him now. He's spent thousands of dollars on whiskey, barrels of wood alcohol and insurance premium fees, nearly all of the money they stand to earn from the life insurance policy, and he's not spending another dime. The men have a final plan. They can no longer hide their overtures of murder behind the pretense of an accidental, indirect death. They have to kill him, for real this time. 
as Malloy sits at the speakeasy bar throwing back whiskey. Pasqua and Murphy rent a room with a gas line hookup. When Malloy finally passes out for the night, the men pick him up and drive him over to the room. Pasqua and Murphy carry him inside, attach a hose to the gas line, stick the other end of the hose in Malloy's mouth, place a wet towel over his face, turn on the gas, and leave. Finally, sadly, after two months of unknowingly fighting against an estimated nine to 20 attempts on his life, like some kind of really sad Mr. Magoo cartoon, Malloy dies within an hour. Pasqua and Murphy return to the room, remove the gas hose, and call up Dr. Frank Manzella, a friend of Pasqua's, to come to the room and issue a cause of death. Pasqua bribes Manzella with $100 to say that Malloy died of pneumonia. Iron Mike is put in the ground without a proper examination by a coroner. Pasqua arranges to have him buried in an unmarked $12 plot of land inside of a $10 coffin. He doesn't even have the body embalmed. The next day, he goes to the Metropolitan Insurance Company with Red Murphy, posing as Nicholas Mellory's brother, Joseph Mellory, and collects on the doubled $800 policy. He then tries to go to Prudential and collect on the other two policies, but it isn't as easy. They want to see the body. Pasqua tells them that it's already been buried. They deny the policy until further investigation into Nicholas Mellory's death can be done. The men finally did it. They committed insurance fraud. Sure, they were only able to collect about $1,600 of the insurance money, about thirty-four grand in today's money, and they had spent more than that in their various attempts to kill Malloy, but at least it was all over. They could call it mostly a wash and move on. Except they don't move on. They turn no real profit from their scheme. So the only thing they take away from it is a story. And it's a good story. The men start spreading the tale of Iron Mike, the man they almost couldn't kill in every speakeasy and club in the city. It becomes a legend throughout New York City. It's so big that people start asking questions. Who are these guys? How did they become so flush with cash? Who is the man named Iron Mike? The story eventually makes it to the insurance agents at Prudential, who immediately become suspicious. They make a trip out to Tony Marino's bar to verify the details of Nicholas Mellory's death and the identity of his brother, Joseph Mellory, who is actually Joseph Murphy, the bartender. But he's not there. Murphy is in jail. Why? Shortly after the payout of the first insurance policy, tough Tony Bastoni became enraged that he was only getting a $65 cut of the money. During an altercation, his lackey Joseph Maglioni shot him to death in self-defense. Maglioni was arrested, and Joseph Murphy was also detained to serve as a material witness to the crime. The situation raises alarm bells with Prudential, who order the body of Mike Malloy to be exhumed so that a new examination could be conducted. Upon inspection, the coroner immediately notices something. Malloy's skin is bright red, and there's only one explanation for this. The cause of death is lethal amounts of carbon monoxide in his bloodstream. If Pasqua had embalmed Malloy's body instead of tossing it in a cheap coffin, 
the carbon monoxide would have dissipated. His skin would have changed back to normal color, and nobody would have known. All the men connected with Molloy's death are arrested. Tony Marino, Frank Pasqua, Daniel Kreisberg, Joseph Murphy, Hershey Green, and Dr. Frank Manzella are all put on trial for the murder of Iron Mike. Joseph Maglioni is already in jail for the murder of Bastoni. The media has a field day with the story, dubbing the team of failed insurance scammers the Murder Trust. Almost overnight, Iron Mike Malloy becomes sort of a folk hero in the economically ailing city of New York. A parable about the common man overcoming relentless adversity and surviving regardless of what's thrown at him. He's an icon of Depression-era hope. It's soon uncovered that this isn't the first time the crew has pulled off a stunt like this. In 1932, Marino befriended a homeless woman named Mabel Carson. Everyone assumed she was his girlfriend. Eventually, he convinced her to let him take out a $2,000, about 43 grand in today's money, life insurance policy on her. Shortly afterward, with the help of Pasqua and a few other men, Marino got Carson drunk, carried her to the upstairs room of the bar, took off her clothes, doused her with ice water and left her in bed with the window wide open into the cold New York City winter air. She died of pneumonia, and Marino collected the insurance money. This was a playbook. During the trial, the men all try to put the blame on the now-deceased, tough Tony Bastoni. They claim to have been bullied and coerced by the mafia goon. The jury doesn't buy it. Of the six men standing trial for the murder of Mike Malloy, only two are given prison sentences. Dr. Frank Manzella and Hershey Green are convicted as accessories to murder and sent to jail. Marino, Murphy, Pasqua, and Kreisberg are sent to Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York, where they're executed by electric chair in June and July of 1934. A reporter at the time calls the executions, quote, the state's toast to old Mike the Durable. But the question remains, how did Mike withstand all that poison and not die? Was he superhuman? The answer is that Marino and his men made a grave miscalculation. They figure they need to get Malloy good and drunk on whiskey before he'll be willing to drink the putrid concoction of chemical solvents. They let him drink his fill of the good stuff before slipping him the poison. But here's the thing. Letting the liver soak in regular booze, the non-deadly, in-moderation kind, actually protects it from the fatal effects of wood alcohol. The poison was bypassing Malloy's liver, and he was just urinating it out in the alley in the back. And what about the metal shavings in the rotten food? Well, I'm not a doctor, but it turns out the stomach is capable of ingesting, weakening, maybe even dissolving some metals. Not well, of course. (laughs) No, not well. But maybe that's one explanation for how he was able to eat metal shavings. Who knows? This story is like a Rubik's Cube of ethical and moral complexity. Every time you've solved a side, you realize you need to backtrack in order to solve another. The obvious sympathy lies with Mike Malloy, an immigrant traveling to the new world to escape economic disparity and chase the American dream, only to be beset by the same strife he was running away from succumb to poverty and addiction, and be victimized by opportunistic men posing as his friends who only saw him as a meal ticket. And it's easy to see the murder trust as cold-blooded killers. Because they are. 
But this event is just a symptom of the bigger problem of the Great Depression, a microcosm of what desperate and hungry people can be pushed to do in order to survive. Life insurance schemes were common during this time because there just weren't many ways for the working class to make money legitimately. Kreisberg stated at the trial that he only agreed to the scheme in order to feed his family. None of this excuses murder, but it's undeniable that the circumstances are not cut and dry. There are big moral questions at play here. You can't help but think of the way that the cocktail of the Depression and Prohibition played into Malloy's death. The U.S. economy experiences a huge downturn, jobs disappear, people turn to alcohol to numb their pain, the government makes it illegal, people resort to more and more desperate methods to make a living and attain booze, and suddenly you have the perfect incubator for the tragic and bizarre death of Mike the Durable. Marino and the rest of the murder trust became a perfect scapegoat for the system-wide failings of the country. A decade of complex structural implosion forced through the pinhole of six desperate men. Their faces churned out onto every newspaper in the country so that people can once again blame their troubles on the scourge of society's refuse instead of questioning the larger events that cause people to behave this way. So tonight, pour a drink for Iron Mike, the Rasputin of the Bronx. Just make sure it's not poisoned, of course. Yes, and reflect on ways we can work towards a world where these things don't happen. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Andrew Price. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast.